Gabe Miller here, and I want to personally thank you for checking out our podcast. And I also want to encourage you to click the subscribe button so that each week's message will automatically show up in your feed. Another great way to stay connected with this is on our website at yourimpactchurch.com and on all of our social media outlets at Your Impact Church. I hope this message today encourages you, inspires you, and challenges you. Let's jump into the message. Some, uh, some in-your-face text and scriptures in it, and, um, and it's just, it's been a joy, though. And, and, and here's the thing, we, we, need, we need that. Like, we need to be confronted, we need to be challenged, we need for the Word of God to step on our toes from time to time. We need for the Word of God to do what Hebrews says it does and cut Right, the, the Word of God is it's living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. The Bible says that, that it cuts and it divides those things that are soul from those things that are spirit. Right, like I, have some, I have some desires in me that are not from the Spirit of God. Can I get an amen on that? Right? This, this, is, um, this is what the Word of God is intended to do in our lives. So James chapter 5, um, just to kind of give you a... A recap of what I would call the the highlight reel of James, the book of James. Um, our soulish desires in us would say, "God, get me out of this trial that I am that I'm in." And James comes along and says, "Well, actually, you should count it all joy, right? Count it all joy." James one two says, "We we would say, God, I need you to bless me with deliverance from this situation." And James would come along and say, no, blessed is the man who stays steadfast through the situation. We would want to say that the devil has put in me the desire to do all this evil that I do. And James would say, no, that's your desires that are leading and enticing you to do the things that you shouldn't do. We are blessed to be taught the word of God here every morning. And James would say, well, the blessed person is the person who hears it and then goes out those doors and does it. Blessed is a doer of the word and not just the hearer only. Um, I would say that I might have made some mistakes in life, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. They, you know, they did this. They cheated on their wife. They, you know, murdered. They did whatever. They're a drug addict. And James would come along and say, well, no, if you've broken one of the laws, then you're guilty of breaking them all, is what James chapter Two says, and uh, it was verses like this one that would lead Martin Luther, the reformer, to conclude that James was a epistle of straw. Uh, the, the, the verse that says, well, I know that I live like hell, but, you know, there's one time I said a prayer and one time I believe, so I'm good. And James comes along and says, well, if your belief, if your life doesn't line up with your belief, and your faith isn't evidenced by the things that you do, then your faith is as good as a body without life. It's dead. Faith without works is dead, is what James tells us in chapter 2. And so if you have your steel tolls on, we will begin with James chapter 5, verses 1. And we'll read from verse 1 down through, one, down through verse 6. James chapter 5, verse 1, he starts off and he says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last de days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's, uh, I'll just conclude that by saying if the shoe fits, wear it. And then we'll just go on to the next verse, right? Now, let's, let's pray, and then we'll ask God to help us out. Father, we, just, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truths. God, we, we worshiped earlier, and we said, Lord, refine us. So, God, do that through your word here this morning. Lord, burn away those things in our hearts that are not of you. Lord, burn away those things in our flesh 
that do not seek you, that seek ourselves and, and seek everything that, that we would desire for ourselves. Lord, burn all of that away. Continue your refinement process in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, verse 1, you, you read that and it says, well, come now, you rich. And then uh, a lot of us in here will be like, well, I'm glad he's not talking to me, <laughs> right? Doesn't apply to me. And then, and then there's some of you in here will say, well, no, if you, if you live in the United States of America, then you're technically richer than 90% of the world, right? So, so who is he talking to in this text? And, and, and I believe that a little bit of cultural insight might shed some light on this particular passage. All throughout the book of James, he mentions the rich several times. Right, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he addresses what I would call the pride of the rich. The pride of the rich. And he states this. He says, let the lowly brother ex boast in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. He would go on to say in verse 11 that the sun rises with the scorching heat and it burns the grass. The flower fails and the, its beauty perishes, but the rich man also, in like manner, will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James, James draws a connection between the rich man's selfish pursuits and his need for humility. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he addresses the people's prejudice for the rich. He, he states, my brothers, in, in, in verse 1, he states, my brothers, show no, no partiality as you Hold the faith of our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man comes in wearing gold rings, fine clothing, and he comes into your assembly, and then, then you have a poor man in shabby clothing that also comes in, and then you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say, hey, sit here in a good place while you look at the poor man, and then you say, but you can stand over there in the corner, or you can sit down here on the ground. Then have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges? Well, he's addressing the people's tendency to be prejudiced towards the rich and show partiality towards them. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, he also addresses the persecution of the rich. He says, these same people that come, that come in and you show partiality to, they're the same ones who drag you into the courts. They're the same ones that oppress you. They're the same ones who would persecute you. And then later on in chapter 5, where we're, our text this morning, he addresses pay that is withheld by the rich when he states that the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters are crying against you, and you've lived your life in luxury and self-indulgence. Now, what, what I believe that as you start to work your way through this passage, what you're going to see is that in New Testament texts such as this one, we, we, have a, we have a societal ideal here in our society called the middle class, right? You're not going to see that in the Bible, right? Dur during this time, General, the Roman General Pompey invaded Israel in AD 63. And when he invaded, like if you were a landowner, you lost everything, right? Unless, unless you had an underhanded deal, some kind of, of unless you're a tax collector, unless you'd worked out a deal with the Roman government, uh, Herod would follow in after him, and Herod would be a Roman puppet governor of that province, and they'd just jack the taxes way up. So all of your, all of your, your small family-owned farms and businesses and stuff like that, they all shut down. They went out of business, right? Because that's what taxes do. All the Baptists said amen to that, huh? <laughs> they, um, there, there was a huge schism between there was a huge separation between what you would call the aristocracy, the rich, versus the rest of the ordinary people, and they were at the lower echelons. You would you could call them the haves and the have-nots, the haves and have-nots. And the general consensus among the people that day, well, was because the haves were haves because they had got their material gain um, in a manipulative manner. That they had cheated people. They had done what they had to do to climb their way to the top. Verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
probably not your t-shirt verse that you're going to use, put on your coffee cup, but James, he, he, warns, he warns them of impending judgment. He warns them of the impending miseries that are coming in the form of judgments. And, and I believe that he's talking about eternal judgments, and I'll tell you why. Um, but I want to look at for, for a few minutes at four reasons from this text that I believe that they are facing imminent judgment. And this is reason number one is stagnant wealth. Stagnant wealth. Look at, in the text, look at what happens to their riches and their garments and their gold and their silver. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now here it is. Your riches, they've rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has corroded, and their corrosion is going to be evidence against you that will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What's, what's the indictment against the people here? He says that, that your resources that you've been given by God, they're just sitting there. They're just sitting there. It's just rotting. It's just wasting away. And James says that the fact that your resources are just stagnant is going to result in judgment. Look at verse 3. It says, because you have, your treasures have laid up in your storehouses, because they've been tucked away in your closets, their corruption in and itself will be evidence against you. The fact that the, fact that the stuff has corroded and has become stagnant is the evidence that James says that's what's going to judge you. That's what's going to judge you when you stand before a holy God. The New Living puts it like this. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and your silver is, corro is corroded. The very wealth that you were counting on, it will eat your flesh like fire. The, this corroded treasure that you have hoarded, and here it is, will testify against you on the day of judgment. You guys remember the, the parable of the talents where Jesus tells a story and he said that, well, there was, a, there was a rich man who had three servants and he gave one of them five talents. He gave one of them two and one of them one. And then the, the, the two servants that took the two and the five, they go and they invest theirs wisely. And we, we would understand that way of saying that they invested it in kingdom uses, right? That, that they were furthering the kingdom of God. But then the other one takes his, he buries it in the ground. And the master comes back and he says, well, I buried it in the ground because I knew that you were fearful. I knew that you were an austere man. I knew that you reaped in places that you did not sow. So here, here it is. I didn't want to do anything with it. I didn't want to lose it. And he looks at him, and this is his statement in Matthew 25, 30. He says, take that servant, cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because they took what God gave them, and they stockpiled it, and it ruined. The, the market tanked. Right? The properties, they got dilapidated. Houses fell down. The stash of cash was stolen by government's new 87,000 RAS agents. You know, it, it, it goes away. It corrodes. It is stagnant. Look at what else results in their judgment. The second thing in this text, it says, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it withheld wages. Verse 4. Verse 4, James writes, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Those withheld wages are crying out against you. Question, what, what is it, according to this text, what is it that is crying out at their judgment? What's testifying and pointing a finger to them? It's the actual money. The actual money itself, he says that you cheated out of someone, that you withheld from somebody that works for you, that actual money is going to be crying out and pointing its finger against you in judgment. And, and, and you better believe that if rocks can cry out the name of Jesus and the blood of Abel can cry out against the atrocities that were committed against him, then those things and that money that you've, with, that money that you've cheated out of somebody, that you, that you sold whatever it was and you knew it wasn't worth it, Whatever that thing is, that will be evidence. He says, for these people in this text, that's going to be part of the evidence that convicts 
them. Why? Because they're rich? No. No, because they took what God had given them and, and they, they stored it and then they manipulated people and then they, the, the, the wages themselves are crying out against them. The third thing, the third thing that you see in this text is the cries of the laborers. It's the cries of the laborers. In verse 4, it says that the, the wages of the laborers, which you kept back by fraud, those wages are crying out, but also the cries of the people that worked for you have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Like it's bad, it's bad enough that they had the, the, the resources, the stagnant pile of resources that are just set there and rotted are pointing their finger. The money that they cheated people out of is also pointing its finger at them. But then you have the echo of the people that they were manipulated and they were cheated. The echo of those who were defrauded are crying and echoing in the ears of the judge. And the last thing in this text that you see in verse 5 is a prideful heart. A prideful heart will also testify against them. Verse 5 says that you have lived on the earth in luxury. And in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. James says that they have fattened their hearts. Right? That, that's a, that's a, a biblical implication for, for pride. Your, your heart has become prideful. And my question would be, well, according to that verse, what is it that's making their heart prideful? He says that it's a, it's a life lived in pursuit of luxury, of self-indulgence. Of luxury and self-indulgence, as, as, you, as you read through the, the Bible, Jesus, he had a parable of the sower and the seed. And when he talks about the different types of soil, he mentions soil that had thorns and soil that had rocks that, that no seed would take root and grow in. And he would go on to make a statement regarding the deceitfulness of riches. This idea that, that riches in and of themselves, they present a they pro they pose a predicament for us because we are susceptible to being deceived by riches themselves and i think the the biblical warning here is against living a life in constant pursuit of luxury and self-indulgence why because that creates a heart that is devoid for the need of god i've got everything i want i don't need god I've got Kroger, right? I don't need God to provide for me. I've got Premier Roofing. And that's, and that's the direction that he's, that he's going here. And if you, if you read back through the Old Testament, when, when God was bringing Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, he, he, he told them, he said, the promised land, it, it's, it's flown with milk and honey. Like you've got houses in this place that you haven't built. You've got cities that I'm giving you that you don't have to build. I am providing every, and, and, that's, and, and for us, that's the promised land of the believer, right? That, that's what God promises us as believers to enter into this place of relationship with him where he's your provider, where he's your sustainer, where he, where he meets all of your needs. And not only that, but he meets them in such a way that you have resources to be a blessing. You have opportunities to sow into his kingdom. And the warning against the, uh, the warning for the people of Israel was always, hey, make sure that you don't get into the promised land and get so focused on all of the things there that you forget, you forget who delivered you into that. You, do, you forget the blesser of all the blessings and you disregard the giver of all the gifts. Now, Jesus, in, 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 the, in, in the New Testament, Jesus never, he never referred to great wealth. Not once did he refer to it as a great blessing. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that it is, and I'm not saying that it isn't, but I think that this text shows us that we should not make the mistake of looking at, looking at a person that is, that is blessed extremely well in, in, or that is extremely prosperous and then consider that, well, well God must have blessed them. Right? That, that, that's a, that's a bless. I mean, you, we, you can look at it all of the, 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 the super rich of the United States and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that all those are not living for the Lord, all right? And, and I think that we make the mistake sometimes of assuming, of assuming that great wealth equals great blessing. But, but here's the thing that Jesus did teach. More often than not, whenever he mentioned wealth, it was always 
an opportunity. Jesus always taught wealth and finances as an opportunity, as a test, as a way of us showing God and, and showing ourselves. Uh, because God knows your heart. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need for you to prove yourself to him. He gives us the opportunity to prove to ourselves, hey, where's my heart at? Where's my heart at? Where, 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 your, where your, your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be also, as Jesus would say. Wealth creates a precarious predicament in the lives of the believer. Now, as we, before we move on to our next section of, of James 5, I want to leave us with what I believe are two things. Two things that we can do to make sure that, that as we have the opportunity, as God gives us opportunity through our resources, through the, the, the provisions that he gives us, what are some things that we can do to make sure that we are ready for and pass that test? And I think the first thing is give consistently. Give consistently. Give cheerfully, but, but give consistently. And, and, and I think for us as believers, I think that's a surefire way. When, when I take it upon myself that I'm going to set aside, I'm going to purpose myself weekly, monthly, whatever that is, but consistently... I'm going to determine and purpose, led by the Spirit of God, that this is the amount that I'm going to set apart for the Lord. And what does that do? It releases my grip. It releases my heart's grip on my things. It, it, it acknowledges that God is my provider, that God is my source, that, that, that He is the source for all of my resources. And I say consistently um, because, I mean, I, I think even... Among some of us here at Impact, you might have a difference of opinion. Well, what is that? Is that 10% to my tithes? You know, but, but here's what I would say. I would say pray and allow the Lord to, to, to come to a, a, a specific amount, you know, whatever that is, and let that be consistent. Man, because I, I get it. 10% of $100,000 a year is a lot different than 10% of thirty. Right, life, life gets rough. Right, single moms, I don't know how you do it, frankly. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it, gets, it seems like it gets harder and harder. But as we purpose ourselves to give consistently, I believe that that's one of the most freeing things that we can do. And I believe it's, it's a way that God continues to do what we sung about earlier, and he continues to refine us. It continues to burn those, that selfishness out, burn that fear out, that fear that, man, if I, if I set this aside for him, well, then how am I going to meet this bill? How am I going to make these ends meet? But the second thing, the second thing that I would tell us to do is to be prepared. To be prepared. Look for opportunities and be prepared. And, and that may be something as simple as a ride, simple as a meal, you know, simple as something that you have laying around that, that you're not going to use anymore. Um, before we uh, get on Facebook and start doing our closet clean out, you know, and, and setting aside all of these clothes that we've barely worn so that we can make room for new stuff, men, you know who you are. Do this. <laughs> what, what if, what if, what if we got on the church app and we got on, whether it's men or women, and we got on there and we checked with, with our, our body and said, hey, I've got this stuff. Do you, do you, is anybody, can anybody use any of this before I post it, before I sell it? Can, can, can this be a blessing to anybody? And I guarantee you there's going to be somebody in our body that whatever that you would see as maybe um, old and, and, you know, I'm not going to say trash, but one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? Whatever you see that you would that you would want to get rid of, somebody that's going to be a blessing for somebody. That's going to be something that they would probably most often not buy for themselves. So look for opportunities and be prepared. Um, and if and if you and if you lack opportunities, like if you lack opportunities to be used by the Lord, maybe maybe examine who you spend most of your time around. Like maybe if I spent more time around people that were outside of my little economic circle that I make for myself, maybe if I spent more time with people that, and you know, you know there's going to be drama, right? There's going to be messiness. 
because life gets messy, and, and that's what it looks like. But hey, if you purpose yourself to spend time with people that may not look like you, that, that, that you may not be used to spending your time around, and see, man, if, where can I fit in? Lord, where can you use me? God, where can I be a blessing in this person's life? We've, uh, we've covered the, the, the prosperous. Let's move on to verse 7, and we will look at the patient. This is we're talking about the prosperous, the patient, and the praying. Verse 7, James writes, Well, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, as, you, as, you, as we move from this first section talking about the prosperous, we move into this next section. And how, how many of you notice like a, a little bit of a different tone? As we come out of, in, in, in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. You've got judgments are coming upon you. Misery is coming upon you. And then all of a sudden now he's like, all right, brothers, be patient. Jesus is coming back. You know, and, and I think there's a I think there's a little bit of a shift in the audience that he's referring to in this. The the word that, that you see all throughout this the verses seven through twelve are going to be the word for patient here. It's going to be a little bit different word than the word that he uses in chapter one when he says, Let patience have its perfect work. This word for patience here, it, it carries with the idea of being patient while deferring your anger. Being patient while not getting angry. And the thought here, a lot of scholars believe that, that he is addressing what, what we talked about as being the majority at this time. Like if you looked at that text talking to the prosperous, these would be the people that he's talking to that are the ones being manipulated, the ones being cheated, the ones being gotten over by the, 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 the wealthy aristocracy of that that time and, and 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 his instruction to them is interesting. Notice that that James James doesn't tell him, hey, this is a, when you have this happen to you, um, you need to get on Facebook and start a smear campaign, right? See if you can see if you can ruin that business that you worked for. Instead, he says, let the judge of all the earth do all the judging. Like you can entrust. The judgment, the ultimate judgment for all of that stuff. I, don't, I know that you've been wronged. I know that you've been cheated. I know that they have manipulated you. However, you can entrust the judgment to the judge of all the earth. And, and that's, that's not to say that we shouldn't be promoters of justice. God tells us, Micah 6, 8, he says, love justice, right? But there's this, this reality that, that perfect justice is not going to come through a social construct. Perfect justice is not going to come through the government. It's not going to come through elephants and donkeys. It's not going to come through any of those things. Perfect justice is not going to come until the perfect judge is presiding over the earth. And that's exactly where James tells them, hey, you can be patient and you can be steadfast because the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Is anybody excited that Jesus is coming back? Right, that, that there's going to be a day when he returns bodily to this earth. His coming, his advent. There's a, there's a few things concerning the coming of the Lord that, that I think that, that we should all agree on. And, um, and I think, number one, I think that, that Jesus is bodily returning. Like there's going to be a day when he comes back and that's honestly that's one of the truths that keep us on the fringes of fanatics in society the rest of the world will look at you 
for your crazy belief, your lunacy, your fanatical belief that some guy that was born from a virgin came and died on a cross, was buried, and then all of a sudden he rose from the, from the dead. You, you establish your faith. You build your faith around this idea that this, that this guy, born of a virgin, comes and dies, and then he comes back up out of the grave, and then he just floats off into the clouds. And the rest of the world looks at you and says, that's why you're crazy. I can get, I can get by with loving one another. I can get by with doing for one another and caring for one another. But then when you're talking about um, guys coming back from the dead, and you're talking about some mysterious, and, and not only guy, but God himself in the flesh, that, that, that the creator of the universe is going to come back and sit here upon the earth, then that, label, that puts you in the category, you and I in the category of fanatics. And hey, that's okay. That's okay, right? It, it's okay to be seen as a fanatic by the rest of the world. There's a lot of other things that we stand by, like binary gender, that are going to make you a fanatic of the world, right? There's a lot of other things like, like well, the only bed that is not defiled is the marriage bed. People are going to look at you and say, oh, golly, y'all still, y'all still observe that one? Like, I thought we were past that. Right, I mean, I mean, we're we're good going to church and everything, but man, y'all still y'all still believe that that you're not supposed to have sex before you're married? Absolutely, we're one of those churches. We're we're, we're not. I mean, it, it's not a, a great benevolence program with a good band. I mean, we're we're a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do what He says. We try to we live by His word. Now. Back to the text. Watch, now watch this. He, 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 encourages, he, he encourages the people to be patient despite the fact that they're being manipulated by the people around, by the people that they're working for. And then he says that the judge is standing at the door. Don't worry about it. The judge will handle it. And then look at verse 8. He says, make sure your heart is established. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. In light of the reality that Jesus is coming back, make sure that your heart is established. Now what, what does that what does that mean? That we establish our hearts. And I, I like that he uses the word heart here because the Bible often uses the word heart to refer to those that that center of man, that 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 place from which all faith and all obedience and all of these things come from jesus would say in matthew 5 8 he said blessed are the pure in heart because they're the ones that are going to see god right jesus would tell us that adultery committed in the mind is actually adultery in the heart right from 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 within the heart proceed fornications and adulteries and all of these things that 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 i believe it's matthew 15 tells us about they proceed from the heart but there's two there's two scriptures that i want to put on here that I believe get to the heart of what he is referring to here. Romans 10.10 10 says that, For with the heart one believes. Notice that. You believe with your heart. With the heart one believes and he's justified in the mouth. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. And here's the other one. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Because from your heart flow everything in life. Everything that you believe and everything that you do flows out of this place of the heart. So what's James instructing us to do when he says, hey, make sure your heart's established. He's, tell he's telling us, hey, you need to have decided on what you believe. You need to know what you believe. You need to know the gospel by which we're saved by. And then you need to live a life that reflects that. That's the establishment of the heart. Know what you believe. And do what corresponds to that belief. And then what does he tell you after that? He says, quit grumbling. Quit complaining. Look at verse 9. Don't grumble against one another so that you may, may not be judged. Quit complaining over the trivial things, over the small stuff. The last section that he, that he talks to us about, and, and I think it's going to be, I've, I've labeled it the prayer. We've talked about the prosperous. We've talked about 
patient, and now we're going to talk about the praying, the praying people. Verse 13 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I'm sorry, that's, yeah, verse, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person. How many of you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the blood, is what makes you righteous? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain and for Three years and six months it didn't rain, and then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore his fruit. Now, in seven verses, James uses the word pray or prayer seven times. So I wonder what the main thrust of this passage is talking about, right? He's talking about praying. He's talking about prayer. If you're sick, pray. If you're suffering, pray. If there's sin in your life, confess it with one another. And pray. Now, I, I want to look specifically for just a minute at verses 14 through 16. He says, If anybody is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if, he's, if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, what we notice first in this text, number one, is why the elders? Why does he say, call the elders to pray? For, I mean, for starters, every one of us, Mark 16, 18 says that all of you, all believers are called to go out and lay hands on the sick and pray for them and they'll recover, right? Every one of us are called and commanded to do that. Now, now, I'm not oblivious to the fact that there's probably some of you in here that grew up in a church like I did, and you start laying hands on people, and they start getting a little freaked out. Right? We're getting a little weird now. We're laying hands on... And, and let, me just kind of, let me just kind of dispel a little bit of the hesitancy. The, the whole idea, I believe, behind laying hands on people and praying for them is not acknowledging that, hey, man, I've, I, can, I can fix you. Jay, I can fix you, man. That, that, that's not what it is. It, it's the idea that, you know what, in and of myself, Dustin, I can't do anything to fix you. But there's one who lives in me that is greater than he, he who lives in the world. There's one who lives in me. I can't do anything, but there's one who has chosen to live and glorify himself and work in his people through the lives of people that are willing to be vessels of his presence, people that that are willing to acknowledge that, man, I, I, I don't really have a whole lot, but there's somebody living in me who can meet every one of your needs. There's somebody living in me who can deal with that relational issue. There's somebody living in me who can heal that sickness. And that's the whole idea behind laying hands on people and praying for them. So what's, what's the deal with the elders then? And, and I want us to key in on the fact that, that, that I believe in this text, I believe that something is, it's, it, James is dealing with an issue of something that is in the body of believers. Something, this is, this, he's, he's giving instructions on how to deal with issues in the body of believers. But notice, he's not just dealing with sickness, he's dealing with sin also, right? He's dealing with sickness and with sin. A, a person in the body is sick. The elders come, they lay hands on him, they pray for him, and they deal with the sins. They deal with the sins. And he goes on saying, therefore, therefore, verse 16, therefore, meaning that he's tying everything in verse 16 to that which preceded it. So it leads us to conclude that James is concerned with an issue of sickness that may be a result of sin. 
an issue of sickness that may be a result of sin. Now, I don't want you to leave here thinking, yeah, I'll leave that guy from Impact Lucas. He said that I'm sick because I've got sin in my life, and that, that's not what I said. Okay? However, however, the Bible does speak of sickness that is a result of sin. Jesus healed a, a lame man by the pool of Bethesda in John 5.40. He healed him, and then he said, hey, get up and, and go and sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Right? The, uh, sin has consequences. I, I deal with a lot of drug addicts. Okay? Hepatitis C, it's a real consequence to a lifestyle for a lot of my brothers and sisters who have chosen to, to, to live their life like that. It's a consequence. Right? Hypertension that comes from worrying all the time, that's a, that's a disease that is a result of sin. And, and, and let, us not, let, let us realize that God didn't design this world with sickness in it. He didn't architect all of this around us with disease in it. That wasn't part of his original design. All sin, all, all sickness, all disease, all of that is a result of sin in one form or another. And that's why I believe that in, in this text that he addresses the need of addressing the sickness and the sin, and the sin. Now, why the elders? I, I believe that he uses them, he points to them, because they serve as an example of those who are watching over your soul. They're, they're those that are, are leading with spiritual discernment. They're those that are, that are able to sit down and counsel with you through some of these things that you might have going on. But I think they're just an example. I think he points to them and says, hey, these guys will be able to, to, to look at that and see what you're going through. But, but here's the reality. There's a, I know for a fact there's a lot of people sitting in this room that are qualified to do that with you. There's a lot of people in here that have gone through the same things that you're going through. There's a lot of people in here that are willing to sit down and pray with you through some of these things, whatever they may be. Now, it goes on and he mentions... Um, Oil, anoint them with oil. So, do we have to use oil? Yes. How much? Until you hear it go bloop, run out all over their heads, right? Look, I, I, think, I think with the oil, number one, this, there's only one other time in the Bible, in, I'm sorry, one other time in the New Testament where this is mentioned using oil with a healing, and it occurs in Mark 6. Now, I think if you start to go down through the Rolodex of all of the scriptures talking about healing in the New Testament, you're going to see that God often healed, Jesus often healed in different ways. He had different methods, right? For one guy, he reached down in the dirt and he made mud and he smeared it on his eyes. For another, for another guy, he, he did what I've been doing to Dustin up here and he just spat in his eyes, you know. He, 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 he goes to the guy and he just spits in his eyes and then he rubs them. One guy tells him to go wash in the muddy river. Right? Why does he do that? I, I think that he does that, number one, to keep us from developing some sort of method. Right? We're not, trust me, you're not going to come down here for prayer. I, I'm not going to spit in your eyes. And if anybody does, well, we're probably going to have a conversation. Right? But I, I, think it's a, I think he does it so many different ways so that we don't develop some kind of method, some kind of formula where we say, well, well, man, God did it here, so we've got to do it just like this every single time. And when we don't, well, it was because we didn't abide by the formula. Right? Because God, he moves according to his will different ways, different times. Now, another thing that you're going to realize is, is that the book of James, from, from verse 1, he tells us that this is a primarily a Jewish audience. And when you go through the Old Testament, you're going to see oil mentioned numerous times. They would use oil to anoint the priests. They would use oil to anoint the kings. They would use oil to anoint different, different things, even in the tabernacle, inanimate things. And ultimately, it was a symbol. It was something that reminded them of the blessing of the Spirit of God on somebody or something. John, 
the, John picks up in, in 1 John chapter 1, he picks up this idea, I'm sorry, chapter 2, and he tells them, you've got an anointing. There, there's your oil. You've got an anointing that teaches you, talking about the Holy Spirit that resides within us. And in, 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 does, the, does the oil have any miraculous powers? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, Paul doesn't mention oil in any of his healings and throughout all of the Greek churches. Why? Because they're not familiar with the Old Testament text that I talk about. Right? O oil might come to them. It might be a little awkward. It might be a little weird, whatever. And so you never see that mentioned in his text. Now then, let me say two things about it. Number one, um, don't get freaked out if somebody does use oil on you. Right? If somebody has some oil and they're going to pray for you and they're going to lay hands on you and they say, hey, let me anoint you with oil. Like, don't, don't, don't let that freak you out. Because let it remind you that, that our faith, right, the, the faith that we, that the, the foundation of all of our beliefs, we have an ancient heritage. We have an ancient faith. Our faith, we, we worship the same God as Abraham, as Isaac, and Jacob. And so you, 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 you allow it to, to focus your mind back on the heritage, number one, of the forefathers of our faith, of the patriarchs throughout the Old Testament. And, and, and it, like a, a nostalgia in a sense, but more than that, more than that, let it point you to the reality that, man, that oil is a symbol of the presence and the power of God in the healing, in, in the healing. But number two, let me say this. You got any oil on you? A man, a man that prepares himself, a man that, that purposes himself to 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 come to church or live his life with oil in his pocket, that's a man who's ready to be used by God. That, that's a man who has, who has already settled it in his mind. Hey, man, I don't know what the Lord has for me today, but whatever, that, whatever today's circumstances may, may, I may be faced with, whatever people I may run into, like I'm ready to be used by God as a vessel. I'm ready, I'm, I'm ready to be used by God for healing. I'm ready to be used by God for whatever he wants me to do. And frankly, that's a person that I want praying for me. I, I, want, I want a guy who, who knows that he, is, that he is being used by God and who prepares himself to be used in such a way. Now then, I don't have any oil on me. I don't usually carry oil on me. Um, when I need that, I go to this brother over here because he almost always has oil on him. And, uh, but, but it's just, it's, don't, let, don't let it freak you out. It, it is a good thing. Um, as we close here this morning, uh, worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. I, I want to talk about Elijah for just a second. Elijah, in verse 17, it says that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Anybody, anybody remember reading the story of Elijah when he calls down fire from heaven, right? I mean, it's this big showdown in the book of, I think it's, I think it's 1 Kings. He, 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 he has this big showdown, and he calls down fire from heaven, and fire falls on the sacrifice, and then you read that, and then you read a verse like this. It says, Elijah was just like you. And you're like, man, I don't know about that. I have never called down fire from heaven. But then if you, if you read through that story in 1 Kings, you're going to see the next thing that he did, the next thing Elijah does is he goes off running, scared of a woman. There's a woman chasing him. Jezebel's chasing him, and he goes off scared of him. Why? Because Elijah was a weak man, just like me and just like you who had a big God, who had a powerful God, who lived within him, who, who, was, who was able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. God, Elijah was not confident in his ability. He was confident in the presence of the God who lived within him. Let me, let me challenge you guys this morning. As here in a few minutes, we're going to have some people up here praying. And 
And, and here's the reality. They're just like me. They're just like you, any of you guys, right? But, but we have a God who has determined to live within us. When you come down here and pray with one of these people for whatever it is, you can be assured that they don't have anything in and of themselves that's going to fix you, but the God who lives within them does. And when they lay hands on you, and when they pray for you, and heaven's going to meet earth, and God's going to hear, and he's going to heal his land just like he promised. Amen? Would you guys stand with us as we close? Prayer team, if you guys want to start making your way back down here. The last verse in our text, James says, if anybody's wandered off from the truth and somebody brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Guys, I, I, I don't want you to leave here this morning not knowing whether or not the Lord knows you. The Bible says if you've, if you've wandered from the truth, are, are you, are you wondered, have you wandered this morning? Have you wandered off from that place where the, you know that God needs you, that God wants you to be? Have you wandered off from that place of intimacy with the Lord? Have, have, you, have you just been wandering your whole life? Come down here and find your way. Come down here and, and pray with one of these brothers and sisters. Allow the Spirit of God to do what He promises to do. Allow the Spirit of God to come and change you from the inside out. Meet with Him this morning. Allow him to begin that refining process that we, that we talked about earlier, that we sung about earlier. Pray with me this morning. Father, we just thank you for, I thank you for who you are. We thank you that, you that you are good and that you've always been good and that you will always be good. Lord, we thank you that, God, in the midst of whatever situation, that circumstances that we find ourselves in, but we know that, that as believers, God, that we know that you are at work in the mess. God, that, you, that that is part of your refinement process, Lord. And, in, and sometimes, God, we just we need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded that you're not done with us, Lord, that you're not all of these situations that we might encounter, that they are not without, they're not wasted. They're not without purpose. God, remind your people here this morning that you're at work for their good. Father, draw every heart. Draw every heart this morning that, that, that is lost, every heart that has just wandered off, every heart that is just broken and in need of healing. God, draw them down here this morning. Heal, we ask you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.